We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Back on Joe's Lanai in Fort Myers, Florida. Extended spring, episode four. It's a little bit cloudy, but very nice afternoon indeed in Florida. We hope everyone is staying safe up in New England, encouraged by some of the news that begins to come out, and we hope that there'll be baseball. Before too long, Joe and I are going to talk about some of the speculation about what might be happening in the months to come with baseball. First things first, Joe, great to be back with you. How is week four of sheltering in going for you? Well, I can't say it's exciting (laughs) or interesting, but we're here in Fort Myers where it's warm and sunny, and we can at least be out walking and bike riding if... uh, not interacting with others, except for this podcast. <laughs> from opposite ends of the patio, by the way. We've, we've gotten some heat from folks at WEEI when we send these things in or when the play-by-play of the eggplant rollatini went on air. It, people think that we're, like, sitting right next to each other. We could not be further apart. We have very long uh, microphone cords <laughs> that stretch maybe 30 feet. So Let's be I honest. Jan Castiglione would not let us break the social distancing regulations. No way, and that's why we're separated uh, out here on my long lanai <laughs> as the palm trees uh, move in the wind and the sun beats down. Sorry about that, New England. Now, I will tell you this, Joe. In a heartbeat, I would trade warm breeze and palm trees for wet air, and Safeco Field. I guess it's now called T-Mobile Park in Seattle. Other than the opening trip to Toronto and other than the home opener, this was the one trip that I was looking forward to the most. I've never done a game in Seattle. Obviously, I've got family in the Bay Area. I circled this one long ago. This weekend, we would have been in Seattle tonight for the first of four. It hurts to miss this one. Well, it does from uh, certainly the travel standpoint, although from a wins and losses standpoint, Seattle and Oakland have been two of the toughest places for the Red Sox to play last year, of course, uh, starting in Seattle, losing three of four, and then losing two or three in Oakland, and then going to Arizona, going three and eight on the trip was not the way to do it. Uh, I think in retrospect, the Red Sox wish they had not uh, let that happen with a schedule, especially in Seattle and Oakland, where traditionally it's been very tough. I mean, both are big pitchers' ballparks, and uh, it's not so much that uh, either club was great. Seattle certainly wasn't. They got a great start, but then they lived up to uh, their preseason billing, which was not very good. And uh, But it's a beautiful ballpark. T-Mobile, as you said, it's called now uh, with a retractable roof. Of course, Oakland's an ugly ballpark, one of the worst. But still a lot of history there and uh, a place, again, where it's been tough for the Red Sox. Uh, although we gladly uh, take our chances to be there this week. And, of course, this is Easter weekend, and we'd like to wish everyone uh, a happy Easter. And uh, I know you'll be sheltered, but uh, it's still a wonderful holiday. We will get into Joe Stig's all-Easter team a little bit later in the podcast. I want to get right into major news in baseball, Joe. Reports on Monday that high-level, serious conversations have been had between the owners and the Players Union about beginning baseball as soon as late May and early June 
in Arizona. Now, Tuesday, the commissioner's office tried to walk this thing back a little bit and say that no specifics have been discussed. There only have been real intense conversations about what it might look like from a health perspective to pull this thing off. I'm going to get into it. We'll drill down on it. But just your first blush when you read it, what did you think? Well, it's better than no baseball at all. And that's the first uh I think the I first totally thing agree with you. Don't of. you give them credit for trying to find a way to get something done, however that looks? Right. And I think they, it's a trial balloon that the Rob Major Manfred's good at that. thrown out there. Yes, he is. Uh, and it has some merit. I certainly agree with the idea of playing before empty stands because television and uh, radio, in one way or another, will uh, bring entertainment and information uh, to people's homes and cars if they're still not sheltered that'll be huge people might just be driving around in their cars on loop <laughs> it could well be <laughs> but i don't know about playing in arizona i mean you have the one indoor ballpark at uh, chase field where the diamondbacks play and the other parks the spring training parks are all outdoors and it could be 110 to 115 in arizona and play early in the day well it's even hotter then if you play later, you lose prime time on the East Coast. So there are some real drawbacks there. And, of course, the biggest thing is players being away from their families four and a half months. I don't think the Players Association is going to go for that. It's interesting, Joe. That was my first impression. And then I spent a couple of days thinking about it. I'm with you that on its surface, that sounds terrible. You have players with young kids and wives four and a half, five months separated completely because the idea for all of this, Joe, that's the reason they pick Arizona, 10 ballparks in a 30-minute radius, finite number of hotels. They basically want to create a bubble into which and out of which no one can pass. I think, Joe, that at some level, if the, the discussion is, okay, players, you can either do that or we're going to teach the country and our fans that they can live without baseball for 18 months. And, oh, by the way, you're not going to get paid for the 2020 season. I think some players could view it as sort of like a wartime deployment and go do their thing and, and get paid and have a baseball season. Well, that could be. I think there will be many modifications. Though. I do, too. And uh, I've heard uh, inside sources say the Players Association isn't too wild about the idea as it has been written and explained to us and not that we know all the details yet so there's a lot of work that has to be done but i think the fact that major league baseball and the players association are trying to find a way is very encouraging and we know that uh, the collective bargaining agreement is up next year hopefully they find a way here to compromise and they find a way next year this whole thing might make compromise the following year out of new CBA a lot easier. But right now, the key is getting baseball back. You know, the interesting thing, Joe, is it's not dissimilar to what's happening in the world around us at large. And that is, to me, it's almost pointless to have conversations about dates because we just don't know anything. And what's amazing is we are now today no closer. I, I just don't care about what any reports or any leader says we are not any closer to having widespread availability of quickly verifiable testing. And so any assumption that we can get this bubble created and create baseball relies and depends upon that. And so until we have that, I mean, to, don't you feel like the, all of it is 
totally moot until we get that right. step done? It's still conjecture. It's way too early, far too premature to put any kind of a timetable on anything like this. And I'm sure they have contingency plans if we start June 15th, if we start July 15th, even August 1st and play three months. I'm sure they will work those out. Uh, and how do you work the schedule? Do you pick it up where the original schedule called? Uh, of course, there'd be many inequities, but you can't have a perfect situation when something like this has happened. I think teams will play the same number of games, unlike 1972, when the Red Sox lost by half a game to the Tigers because they played one fewer game. But there's a lot of work to be done, and... Uh, I'd love to see it happen. If, if they could find a way to sequester guys and travel easily, why not do it in the major league ballparks before empty stands? I mean, the TV cameras are poised and ready to go, but I think it's, it's the bubble that would be the big factor there. And uh, oh, there's so many, so many things to iron out. There are. Now, there were some things I really liked about the trial balloon that was floated out there. And I think, we will see several of the things that were floated. And I think at some point, on some level, we're going to see an electronic strike zone. There might be an umpire standing far behind home plate to adjudicate disputes and all that. No mound visits between catcher and pitcher. Yay. <laughs> Microphones on players on the field. I think we're going to see a lot more of that to sort of enhance the fan experience at home on television. And so there can be, don't you think, Joe, some good to come out of this. In the end, we might get used to some of these things that could totally change the way we interact with the game. Exactly. I think the pace will be faster just because of what we've gone through and the fact that there will be no catcher visits. Seven inning games, I think, are a real possibility. I was going to ask you about that. There's been so much pushback, Joe. People seem to be horrified given the historical record. I could not care less about that. If you told me we can have a season with seven inning games, I'm signing up. And if you can start two weeks early because the games are seven innings, why not? I mean, the pitchers, spring training's about pitchers. They need the extra time. Regulars can be ready in 20 at-bats. And uh, I don't know how much the spring training we had, the portion of it will matter. Probably not that much the longer this goes. But if you can shorten spring training by two weeks and start regular season meaningful games, even if there's seven innings, so what? You know, don't worry about the record book. I mean, the record book uh, has never been a holier-than-thou Bible. If you look at it, I mean, it doesn't account for steroids, and it doesn't account for lively balls. It doesn't account for so many of the changes in the game that happen year to year. So seven innings, I think, is representative. If you can play seven-inning doubleheaders, fine. I just don't think you can do it outdoors in Arizona in July and August. That part seems to be a major stumbling point. I, you know, spring training could take on an entirely different element, Joe, and that is, say you take a couple of weeks, it would not only be to ramp up pitchers' arms again, it literally would serve as the beginning of the first quarantine. You know, that 14-day period where you would say, all right, here we go. Spring training is you walk in these doors and you become part of this pod of people and you're going to be stuck together. And then in two weeks, once the actual games start, that's the other thing I don't get, Joe. All these articles and columns that knee-jerk push back on the idea of Arizona. You're right to point out there's some things to be worked out. 
But the notion that baseball would put players in jeopardy and that they would have to be worried about contracting the virus on a play at the plate, that's the whole point of the bubble and the quarantine is that you would create a system where the players themselves would not be in danger. Well, that's the point. That's, I guess, the biggest argument for Arizona. The other thing is you'd have to expand the rosters. And, you know, if you limit travel to 50 players, you'd have to have almost a two-platoon system. I've heard interesting things, Joe, where the the roster would be maybe 30-31, but that each game day you could only have 16 active players in order to keep those gatherings below the 50 people in one place on the field. So the strategy part of it could be really, really interesting. Could be. We have no idea how games would be broadcast. (laughs) We might be in a studio somewhere. Who knows? Certainly the camera people would have to be there. The announcers, well... That remains to be seen. But I think it's uh, there's so many things to work out. But hopefully everybody can be on the same wavelength and agree and compromise. And they can come up with a plan once we feel secure that uh, this pandemic is waning. You know, Joe, one thing that I did think of right after I heard about the 16-man active game day roster and the expanded rosters and depth of pitching was... I think the Red Sox have a pretty good man in charge to manage a fluid situation like that. I mean, in some ways, Haim Bloom is ideal to manage that kind of a situation where you've got to tinker with your roster. You've got to have openers and long relievers and kind of game out game by game, game day by day. That's what the Rays do every day of their existence. Yeah, that's a great point. The shuttle they had between uh, Tampa Bay and their AAA Farm Club, the Durham Bulls, uh, that is a good point. He knows how to do that uh, with a roster, and that could be critical, especially if you have an active roster of 16 for each game and then maybe an overall roster of 31 to 32 with so many movable parts. We would have been in Seattle on our way to Oakland at the end of this weekend on Easter Sunday, and uh, I think almost anybody, when you say Seattle Mariners, you think of one guy, and that's Ken Griffey Jr. What was it like watching him play all those years? Well, I wasn't a unanimous pick. I mean, he certainly should have been. It was such a treat to watch him. I mean, the ball was head for the center field fence, and you had to hold your breath because he used to actually practice, and we saw him do this at the Old Kingdom, practice home run robberies. Maybe because the game came easy to him. He was bored with workouts. He would stand at the fence and practice <laughs> home run robberies, and that's why he was so efficient during games. Uh, that reminds us of somebody else we know who plays center field. He doesn't practice home run robberies. He just enacts them in the game. Exactly, Jackie Bradley, when it matters most. Uh, but he was such a great player, a great hitter. Played the game with a smile, uh, except when Tony Fossis was pitching. <laughs> Tony owned him, and he really made a concession when the first hit he got off Tony Fossis was a bunt single. You <laughs> Seriously. Griffey bunt. Later, he took him deep. But Tony Fossis, the left-hand reliever from Jamaica Plain via Cuba, with the Red Sox, had his number for a long time with that Frisbee-type breaking ball. And, of course, the guys like Tony might be extinct today with a three-batter rule. You know, Griffey would go on to play for his hometown team, the Cincinnati Reds. It didn't go, obviously, nearly as well there as it had in Seattle. Do you think that in any way – I mean, Griffey was a supernova. He is widely regarded as one of the elite players of his generation and a clear – clear Hall of Famer. And he saved baseball for Seattle because that team was in big trouble. They would not have probably gotten the approval to build then Safeco Field had Griffey not stepped up and they won in 95 because that team was 
on the brink of moving. So that's a big part of his legacy. I wonder what would have happened today, Joe. I mean, he, he, he obviously lived his life in a different era with a little bit more loyalty. We now see it with guys left and right like Mookie Betts and so many others. I wonder if he were playing today whether he would have spent the bulk of his career in Seattle. <laughs> he almost got traded to the Mets at one point. Uh, I don't know. With the freedom, he had the freedom, though, to move, and he didn't until he decided he wanted to go home to Cincinnati, and he worked out a trade. It was amazing how the Mariners picked it up and won 116 games right after he left. Um, and that was because of Ichiro and great pitching primarily. But I don't know whether he would have stayed or not. I mean, see, I was a long way from his home in Florida, of course, being a Cincinnati native, too. It's interesting to speculate about that, but uh, he really saved baseball in the Pacific Northwest, there's no question. Where do you rank that ballpark? T-Mobile, Safeco, whatever you want to call it. Where do you rank that among all the yards in baseball? Well, I'd be in my top uh, five, certainly, along with, of course, Fenway, but you have to put an asterisk there because that's your home ballpark. Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and uh, then uh, probably Seattle. That's way up there. It's uh, That's one of the reasons we're so sorry to not be there this weekend, and, and we would have spent Easter Sunday in Oakland. This is a day, Joe, that uh, is special to you personally and so many of our listeners across New England and throughout the world who are Red Sox fans. And that that we're not going to diminish that because it has real meaning to a lot of people. <laughs> but you also love it because of the wordplay, and you get to every Sunday once a year rattle off your all-Easter team. <laughs> well, this started because of our good friend, a wonderful guy, a DH for the Red Sox, uh, who was made for Fenway with that left-hand stroke off the wall and over the wall, and uh, later the hitting coach, Mike Easler, who came up to me on Easter Sunday one day and said, Happy Easler. <laughs> and that started at Happy Easler, Mike. And, of course, we came up uh, with a long list. There's one Easter who's played, and that was the great Luke Easter. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. I have the pleasure of knowing Luke Easter. What a wonderful guy. Lucius Easter, his given name, but known as Luke. He started his career with the Homestead Grays in the Negro League, the great uh, team with that had Josh Gibson. He was maybe a year or two after Gibson. And, of course, Satchel Page briefly and uh, so many other wonderful players. But he went to the Cleveland Indians and had uh, some big years with 30 home runs, over 100 RBIs in the early 50s. And he was older, of course, when he got there. They sent him down to the International League, and he bounced around with Buffalo and Rochester and wound up uh, hitting almost 30 home runs every year and playing to his 49 years old. Luke wow. Easter, wonderful guy. We knew him in Cleveland. He is a season ticket holder. And uh, I'll never forget the tragedy. He uh, worked at TRW Corporation and would cash the checks for the employees on payday, and unfortunately uh, was robbed and shot and killed by a robber as uh, he was going back to uh, distribute the funds to the employees. But a guy who's always had a smile. Hit the longest home run ever measured at Cleveland Stadium, Cleveland Municipal Stadium, 477 feet, way up in the upper deck in right center field. 
Luke Easter. Then, of course, a guy was with it with the Milwaukee Brewers, a left-hand reliever. One of the first specialists of his time in the early 80s, Jamie Easterly. <laughs> <laughs> Who could forget Damian Easley at the <laughs> second baseman for the Tigers and uh, also for the uh, L.A. Angels or California Angels in those days. Guy who hurt the Red Sox winning two World Series games in 1975, Raleigh Eastwick, whose wife, by the way, uh, was a flight attendant on several Red <laughs> Sox on. charters. Come on. A very nice uh, <laughs> young lady. And speaking with the Easter theme, uh, this has to be translated for some. Dan Pasqua. Uh-huh. Buona Pasqua, Italian. Happy Easter. Dan Pasqua came up with the Yankees and played mostly for the White Sox, a power-hitting left-hand batter. Uh, we found a couple of bunnies in the early uh, 1900s. Bunny Hearn played for the Boston Braves, a left-hand pitcher in the teens, 19-teens, <laughs> was 7 and 11. And, of course, a Hall of Famer makes the group, Rabbit Moranville from Springfield, <laughs> Mass., the infielder. Uh, he was about 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, there was a Joe Rabbit who played for Ooh. Cleveland in 1922. And Red Sox fans may remember in the mid-90s, a right-hander that came up and went 2-4 and four in 94-95, finished up in Milwaukee, Tim Von Eggman. <laughs> Are you done yet? <laughs> no, we have, uh, who can forget Candy Maldonado? Uh, that's What's a good one. Without candy? <laughs> and the guy who invented the curveball, born in Ware, Massachusetts, Candy Cummings. Yes. He invented the curveball in the 1870s. Which at the time, like when he, he threw it for the first time in a game, there were outcries that it was unprofessional and showing no sportsmanship and that he should be banned from the game and the pitch should not be allowed to be used in the sport. He played mostly for Hartford, which was a major league team then. I looked at his win totals. He pitched about five years, but he had win years of like 33, 28, and 31. He was amazing. Are we done yet? Well, there's Jim Basquette. <laughs> Played the teens for Cleveland. Uh, and uh, a stretch, a couple of stretches. Well, what do you mean? They've already had like five or six stretches. If you want to put your Easter bonnet on, you have Barry Bonnell. Oh, come on, no. We don't count that one. That. How about Billy Jelly Bean? <laughs> that, of course. We'll give him that. <laughs> he was ahead of the curve. on Apparently, you know, he, Billy Bean, who was uh, you know, at the vanguard of a lot of baseball things, you know, he's like a notorious germaphobe and thinks that handshaking should not be part of everyday life. So apparently Billy's on the ahead of the curve on that thing, too. You, got it. you were well, talking about Luke Easter, you know, and uh, I've mentioned to you a couple times, Joe, that I've been way into Joe Poznanski's top 100 baseball players of all time. And uh, he's gotten a lot of pushback because at number five all time, he put Oscar Charleston, the great yeah. center fielder from the Negro League times that, uh, frankly, even a lot of great baseball fans are not familiar with. Now, Joe has come out and said many times that a lot of these numbers are assigned to guys because of jersey numbers and other things. So his argument is not necessarily that he's the, the fifth best player of all time, but that you know, he, he, he deserves his due, and he puts him there. People say he was Willie Mays before Willie Mays was. The man right before him was Ted Williams, number six. I want to get your thoughts on some of these in the top ten. So he had Satchel Page ten, Stan the Man, nine, Ty Cobb, eight, Walter Johnson, seven, Ted, Oscar Charleston, number five, and then we'll get to the top four here in a minute. But what do you think about those first parts of the top ten? Well, I think it's pretty good. Uh, Joe's very much uh... – into the Negro Leagues and the history because uh, he did a wonderful book on Buck O'Neill 
did Josh Gibson make the top ten? I not the top he ten, but have. he's in the he's somewhere in the top fifty. I mean, he has such tremendous power and rifle for an arm as a catcher. Um, but that makes a lot of sense. I'd certainly have at the top of the list. It's just to hear that because I haven't seen the list yet. But I think uh, it's pretty pretty representative. I mean, Oscar Charleston was known as the black tie cob because he could do so many things, was so talented, and uh, also uh, was somewhat of a difficult personality, we understand. Not like Cobb. Nobody was that bad. <laughs> Speaking of difficult personalities, so the, the four that are left, at this point it's just blatantly obvious, the four names that have not been mentioned, and you know they have to be there. And, of course, the, in no particular order, they are Barry Bonds, Babe Ruth, Henry Aaron, and Willie Mays. If you were making the list, what, where do those four rank for you? Well, Babe has to be number one because he pitched. I mean, he won almost 100 games as a pitcher, revolutionized the game with a home run, had all the dramatics. And you look at different eras, it's hard to compare eras in any sport. It gets Pro- tricky. Probably, he hit more home runs than other teams did. He did, yes. And uh, he'd have to be number one when you throw in, especially the pitching factor and the gate attraction, the personality. And everything else. Number uh, one, maybe American sports superstar of all time, right? Right. He and Muhammad Ali, in my book, would be the top two of all time in sports. And I would have to go with uh, Willie Mays second. Willie Mays uh, could do it all. And uh, he spent most of his career in a pitcher's era, you know, the late 50s uh, through the 60s, 60s especially being a pitcher's era. Uh, he was so spectacular. And uh, I don't know where Clemente fit in that list, but he certainly should be in the top ten. He was not far off. He was right on the fringes of the top ten. So he would be in your right, right. in that elite group for you. How about I, Hank Aaron? I would, I would put Henry Aaron third. And actually, Aaron and Mays could be interchangeable. Uh, Aaron had 3,000 hits as well, and uh, he was so consistent. Never had more than 44 home runs in a year, but the consistency factor was amazing. You know, if somebody uh, had a, was more spectacular and more of a showman. That's right. And, and you know, when you compare their offensive numbers and a lot of the production yeah. other than the home runs, although Willie, of course, retired with 660 home runs, so he, he had plenty of power himself. Somebody once said that the only difference between Hank Aaron and, and Willie Mays was that one of them could make a catch at the wall in center field. And, and when you look at the numbers, they are remarkably similar. And he made the basket catch, too, and ran out from under his cap and, in the only ballpark he could have made that catch. Henry made it look a lot easier. He was very, very smooth, and uh, he just glided. I mean, what a wonderful spokesman he has been for the game. Uh, he is such an elder statesman and just uh, so classy and with great perspective. Uh, he has really been maybe the top Hall of Fame ambassador that uh, the game has had. You know, number 11, just on the fringes of the top 10, was the kid, the player who was basically your hero as a kid, Mickey Mantle, number yeah. 11 in the top 100. If he had worked on knee rehab after his surgeries, and if he had behaved himself off the field, <laughs> Big uh, if. he might be number one or no number two. Anyway, or if he hadn't caught the sprinkler in yeah. center field at Yankee Stadium, right? Yeah, but he didn't rehab, and he's the first one to admit. He said it wasn't the knees. It was the fact that he was given rehab uh, work to do, and he didn't do it. You know, he went out and partied instead. Um, but he would have been one of the all-time greats. Bonds in the top four. 
you have I a have problem a hard with time the... with that because of the steroids. Yep. I certainly would put him in the Hall of Fame because I think he was a Hall of Famer before steroids. But I mean the cartoon character they became physically, and you know the seventy plus home runs. Um, I don't know. I'd have a hard time putting him in front of the likes of a Josh Gibson or a Clemente. Josh Gibson, by the way, on this list is ranked number 15. 14, Lou Gehrig. And then speaking of guys with a little controversy around them, number 13 on Joe Pazanansky's all-time list, Roger Clemens. Well, I certainly second that. Where does Pedro stand? Pedro was – he wasn't uh, in the top 20, I know that. I'll I'll have to look back. I think he was somewhere in the 20s. Well, Roger had the longevity, too. I mean, you look at his win total, it was astronomical. 37 was Pedro. 28 was Randy Johnson. Really over Pedro? Well, longevity and 300 wins a big factor. Um, For this shorter period, Pedro and Koufax are the best I've ever seen. But uh, I would would put Roger up there. I mean, he was so dominant, had such great command, and... uh, the durability factor. I was telling you that he ranked guys partially because of their jersey numbers. He's not going to put Willie Mays at 24, but number 24 is Ricky Henderson. <laughs> I, I, you know, we had a lot of good laughs in the booth last year, but I don't think I laughed any harder than when Lou Merloni was telling us stories about Ricky Henderson on the air about coming out to batting practice wearing a neck brace and how he dealt card games and the personality that was Ricky. <laughs> he was unique, and uh, I'll never forget Mike Portwood, the year he was acting general manager. Talking about Ricky, uh, and he'd say Ricky would call him and say, uh, this is Ricky calling on behalf of Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> and another time, uh, he was Ricky ran out of the left field fancy Yankee Stadium, the old stadium. It was padded, but he went down uh, like he had been hit with a bolt of lightning and was carried off the field on a stretcher. I mean, he was so durable and such a great athlete. And Mike Port went down to see him in the clubhouse. Uh, he was on the trainer's table, and he says to Mike, he says, Ricky hurt his bum-bum. <laughs> <laughs> he was back playing the next day. There aren't quite <laughs> yogiisms, but Rickyisms. Yeah. I mean, everybody's heard them. They're all so great. I, the, the, my favorite is when he gets on the bus, he's just joined the New York Yankees. And, you know, veterans at that generation really sat toward the front of the bus. And so he's walking really toward the back, and uh, somebody says, hey, Ricky, what are you doing, man? You can sit up front. You got tenure. And he said, Ricky got 14 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the story, he went up to uh, one of his teammates, uh, John Arrow, who said, I, I played with a guy uh, who had wore a helmet all the time, just like you do. He said, that was me, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> hey, personality and color are uh, – are what made this and make this game so much fun to be a part of and watch. And again, Joe, you know, kind of to bring this thing full circle as we wonder about when baseball may come back, what it might look like, and frankly, how it might change. I am hopeful that guys will be willing to show more of themselves and more of their personalities. I I fundamentally believe that the time away from it are going to recenter guys. And and I hope that that's lasting. Uh, the microphones on players is a step in the right direction. I'm really hopeful that we can show more of the personalities that you and I get to see every day. You know, we saw that in 95 when baseball resumed after the long strike. Players that give fans balls were much more accommodating, signing autographs. And the giving away baseballs continues, but I think this will uh, reinvigorate that, and uh, we'll see a lot more 
uh, fan friendliness when the stands are open to fans. It, I think it, it'll be a great thing for the game. Hopefully we can take away some positives from this terrible period we're all enduring. You know, Ken Burns' baseball series is airing on the MLB Network. We've all been so holed up and, and craving anything. And I've really enjoyed it's. I mean, that is a commitment, Joe. But Lord knows we all have time right now. Each inning is like two and a half hours long. But uh, the most recent one was right into the golden age of baseball with the, the era of the three great center fielders in New York and all that was going on in that city. Uh, you know, if you're at home, which all of us are, and you've got hours to spend, which we all do, that documentary is spectacular. Well, it is. I've watched it many times. And uh, we've had Ken Burns on the air talking about it. What a job he did. And Buck O'Neill uh, is a guy we got to know very well in Kansas City. It made him a star. Uh, yeah, like Shelby. Knew him knew he was a star. Shelby Foot to the Civil War is as Buck O'Neill is yeah. to the to that baseball documentary. He he, and that's why Poznanski and so many others have glued on to him. I mean, he is a shining light. He was such a wonderful and humble guy. We go to the Negro League Museum all the time. Uh, every time we go to Kansas City, Bob Kendrick, the president, is a great friend. Uh, he took Buck around for many years. Uh, Buck, of course, was at the museum. Just Shouldn't he have been in the Hall day. of Fame before oh, he no passed question. away? There's no question. I mean, he managed so many of these greats. And as a scout, he signed people like Ernie Banks for the Cubs and uh, Billy Williams. Uh, and he was such an ambassador for baseball. There was plenty of room to elect him. Unfortunately, it was a group of uh, intellectuals, historians, who did the voting. And they left Buck out. They based it a lot on numbers. And it really wasn't right because it it failed to capture the personality and the importance to the game that Buck O'Neill gave it. But his response was wonderful. He was so humble. He was not bitter. Uh, And I was always so impressed with Buck because uh, he showed no bitterness toward the segregation that prevented him from being in the major leagues as a player. He was the first black scout, by the way, signed by the Cubs in, I believe, 1962. But I remember him telling me that it's one of his favorite days, and we go by Sarasota High School every time where, when we play the uh, Orioles in Sarasota in spring training. He said one of his great thrills was getting his diploma from Sarasota High School in Florida because he was never allowed to go there, mm. even though that was his hometown. And if that doesn't bring it all home, nothing yeah. does. I mean, that's, that's the world he lived in. But he should be in the Hall of Fame, and hopefully that injustice. Uh, and I think uh, his eligibility period will be coming up again that uh, people uh, voting and it's questionable who they are right now I'm not sure but uh, that they would uh, rectify that injustice if the voting this last period is any indication looks like Kurt Schilling will get in in his next year which I think is his final year of eligibility maybe in this window also upticks for Roger and for Barry Bonds. I don't know whether they get in next year, but I'm with you. They Why have a Hall of Fame if those guys are not in it? I think Pete Rose is a separate category because if the game's not on the up and up, you don't have a game. But I think Bonds and Roger definitely belong. Whatever the case, they were Hall of Famers. If they did it, they are Hall of Famers before. Uh, you can argue McGuire and Sosa for saving the game. I don't think they were Hall of Famers before. And uh, you'd have to take each case individually. And if you look at the Hall of Fame, we know there are steroid users already enshrined. Yeah, I'm not necessarily for a wing that is, you know, 
shrouded by all of that. But why don't we just be open about it and and have it on the plaque? Sure. You know, there were rumors about it. But by the way, they were one of the all-time great players. Played in the steroid era. That's, That's it. That's all you have to say. And again, it could be put on the plaques of several people who are already in there. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, Joe, you're an Easter guy. Your hokey team aside. You, <laughs> but, but you don't like ham, do you? <laughs> I can tolerate it. Yeah, ham will be on the Castiglione menu be, this Sunday, right? And I don't think we're going to do lasagna this year. Really? Uh, you'll be part of this uh, feast with ham and uh, Jan's cheesy potatoes, mm. broccoli slaw. Oh, and she's got a dessert planned. Uh, not the one she had originally, because that would have meant another trip to the grocery store. <laughs> we're, we're all trying to we're limit trying that. To limit, uh, but uh, she'll come up with something very creative, and uh, you and Jen and. Bailey, uh, I think we'll enjoy it very much. Well, we can't wait. And uh, from afar, Joe, it's been a lot of fun once again. Happy Easter to you. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, Mike. And uh, we will look forward to and doing we'll. this again next week, Joe. Thanks so much. We'll do it again. And stay healthy, everybody. Stay sheltered. And uh, we hope we have baseball sooner than later for you. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one. They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.